Cynthia and Ganit with another episode of Life, Law, and Crossing Borders. Today we're going to talk to you about applying for vacation schemes and training contracts under our From Me To You segment. For our case law segment, Cynthia's going to talk about a classic case, which is Donahue and Stevenson. I'm going to talk about NFTs and what they are and why they're blowing up right now under commercial awareness, and then we will check in on each other. Also let you guys know we've decided to do our episodes bi-weekly just so that we have a little bit of a break. (laughs) Not from you guys, more so for ourselves, just so that we can make sure our podcast is to the best quality that it can be. And we're also thinking of starting up an Instagram so that even though we're not always telling you guys what's going on, at least we can share that with you guys on social media. Let's get right into it. Yep. me to you because we lived through it and now we get to share it before we dive into vacation schemes and training contracts we should probably tell you when you're in the uk you are either practicing as a solicitor or a barrister a barrister is someone who will be going to court every day and being at the forefront of the legal system yeah you it's definitely the people you see on tv screens the ones going to court the ones making all the theatric scenes if i say so myself but it's a bit different here because you are either one or the other whereas everywhere else that i know of in the world you kind of get to do both things in Mm -hmm. one role as just a lawyer so being a barrister here you definitely are a bit more independent Usually you work in a barrister chambers rather than a law office. So solicitors will usually be the ones in the law office dealing with clients. They're a lot more hands-on, working behind the scenes, figuring out what needs to be done. And if that work needs to be taken to court, they'll contact a barrister who'll take it from there. So the roles are split in those two ways. The more Guinea and I look into it, the more we think we'd want to take on that solicitor route. Yep. In order to get there, we have to do vacation schemes and training contracts, and Ganit will kind of explain what the vacation schemes are before we jump into the training contracts. Vacation schemes are two to three week internships that you do with law firms which you apply to. These internships usually take place in the summer break, winter break, or the spring break, depending on the firm you're applying to. Sometimes you get paid to do that, which is amazing, but not all the time. And during the vacation scheme, you pretty much get to shadow lawyers. It's a pretty great opportunity to get some work experience in. We've been applying for vacation schemes and just hearing back uh, from some of them right now. Uh, I've read about a bunch of them online through the Law Careers Net Insights, which kind of let me know what actually happens during the vacation schemes. And they seem really beneficial as at the end of them, you may or may not be asked to interview for a training contract, which is the second half of what we'll be talking about. But I just want to talk about the vacation scheme application because it's not as simple as you think. This is very competitive. This is something all law students are vying for because vacation schemes are open to you after your first year, pretty much. Usually if you're in your first year, you want to kind of apply for open days to kind of get a better sense of what law firms are out there and what law firms would interest you. But in your second year, so your penultimate year, you want to start looking out for those vacation schemes. How do you go about 
looking at law firms and then looking at their vacation schemes? I looked at what areas I wanted to practice in and which law firms offered those areas to me. That was my first criteria. And then my second criteria was location. So all the law firms that I've been looking at are located in London because it's easier for me to travel there or just stay there for a while. I've also been going on the websites for all these law firms, seeing what kind of programs they have for students, what the student testimonials say. What are you looking for in your law firm from not only the field that they offer, but in the environment or the culture of the company? I want a law firm that will teach me something where they're willing... More education! (laughs) Yeah! Give me all the knowledge that is out there. Because university and law school wasn't enough. (laughs) I want more hands-on experience. I want someone that will lead me and train me and kind of help me mold myself into the solicitor that I want to be one day. What about you? I'm definitely looking for a law firm as well that's going to support me through my time. I'm also looking for a law firm that is willing to see me through not just a vacation scheme and a training contract. I would like to have a firm develop me over time because I believe being with a firm for a longer period of time allows you to have that growth and that full development and that well-roundedness, if I say so myself. So I'm definitely looking for a firm that's willing to make a long-time investment because I know I'd be willing to do the same for them. So that's what I'm looking for at a firm when I'm applying to vacation schemes. And especially when I'm writing the vacation scheme responses, I try to emphasize that as much as I can. Because usually when you are doing the applications, you get between one to five questions. And they're usually, why do you want to work for us? What do you like about us? What's going on in the world right now that might impact us? How do you see yourself helping us? Yeah. So it's really about placing yourself in their system and making yourself seem like a really valuable asset. I find that really hard to do on paper. I'm much better doing that in an interview and talking to people. Yeah, that's been one of my biggest struggles. This is one of my weaknesses. I don't realize what skills I have. It takes other people to point it out for me and that is something I'm working on. I just feel like I'm bragging about myself and I'm not fully comfortable doing that. So In a 200-word space. (laughs) Yeah. Get me to talk about myself. I can do that for hours. When it comes to writing it down, God help me. It's really hard to focus on those important points because you don't want to miss the aspects that you know are really vital and critical, but you can't get them in a 200-word space. So I know that one thing, one piece of advice that has been given to me that I've implemented when I'm writing my applications is you won't be able to get it all. So if it's one 200-word answer, just write about one incident or one event and exemplify your skills, focus on them, and show that in one situation, you are able to use four or five different skills and you really excelled at them. And I think that's really important to come across. Another more technical part of the vacation scheme application we just want to touch upon because this is something that confused us a little was they ask for a lot of your grades, uh, not just your law school grades, but for example, your A-level and GCSE grades, which for incoming Canadians may be like, what is this? What is the equivalent? So I just want to kind of clarify that. Your A-level grades would be your final high school grades, or in my case, for example, if you did the international baccalaureate, that's what that would be. It's what you ended up on. 
and then your GCSE grades is equivalent to your 10th grade grades. Which is really odd because I wouldn't want law firms to hire the 16-year-old me. But it is relevant to them in terms of the system that we're in. Because people here in the UK tend to go to university right after they finish high school. It is a little change in the system. However, it doesn't fully change their perspective of you. And also, I found that I'm quite proud of showing all those grades because it really shows progress. Yeah. (laughs) And my ability to learn from my mistakes and my ability to grow as a person. Also, another thing I want to mention about vacation schemes is this is really competitive. You will get rejections. I've gotten rejections. So have I. You'll get successes where you get asked to go to a virtual assessment. That's always really exciting and you should, you know, pat yourself on the back for that because you've gone one step further. But just treat all of it like an experience. If you can ask for feedback from every recruiter, that's great because they'll tell you exactly what areas you need to improve on, what maybe they were looking for that you don't necessarily have. But don't let it get to you. It's hard to hear no, but that's the worst that they did. They said no. The way I'm looking at all of my rejections is practice for the next round of applications that I'm going to write. Definitely. Going off of that, I just want to do a quick touch note about training contracts because when you're applying for vacation schemes, most of the time firms will have you apply for the training contract at the same time. I just want to explain what training contracts are When you're going down the solicitor route, when you finish law school, you have the choice of doing the LPC, which is a law practice course. Um, It's a year-long program, and once you finish it, you can move on to a training contract if you're successful um, through an application. And after you do your two-year training contract, you are, are officially a solicitor. However, now in the UK, the system's kind of changing where they've introduce something called the SQE, which is the Solicitor Qualifying Exam, and it comes in two parts. So the first part can be done during the time you're doing a training contract, depending on what your firm kind of wants you to do. So that is something you'd have to discuss with a particular law firm. And then at the end of your training contract, you will be doing the second SQE exam. However, one thing I do want to bring to some people's attention when they're coming into the UK now is that For the SQE option, you don't necessarily have to do a training contract. There are other options. For example, you could work as a paralegal for two years. So there's many different routes available in that way. And it is something that the legal system here in the UK is going to have to adapt to. It is something I would recommend students coming into the UK to practice to look into. And regarding looking into it for vacation schemes... I think we said this before, but I want to reiterate, start looking at it as soon as you consider coming to the UK. There's a couple of websites that you can look at that will help you. For example, the Bright Network, there's Law Careers Net, there's Forage, there's Vantage, and just talk to your school. Talk to your profs, talk to the career um, hub. They'll help you, they'll guide you to these resources. Take time out of your first month that you're in in law school and explore these um, websites, see what's out there and start making your list because some deadlines are genuinely at 30th of September for vacation schemes and training contracts. Yeah, 
usually all of the really big firms that a lot of people want to get into, they they start going really fast, they start going really early, so you want to make sure you have your foot in the door before they close it. Another thing, some of the firms do hire on a rolling basis, which means the day the applications open, if they start getting applications and they find, say, 30 people that they want to hire or 30 people they want to interview, likely they're probably not going to look at the other applications that are coming in because they've found the people. So do bear that in mind when you're looking at firms, see what their hiring policy is, what their process is, because every firm is different. I know that's a lot of information we're throwing at you, but we will touch on these subjects again. And if you guys have any questions, feel free to email us and we will be happy to talk to you about it. Cases shaping our system. This is how we guide you through it. I figured it was time for a classic. It is a case that I truly enjoy the facts of and has brought about significant change in the legal world. In it lies a key principle that all law students in the Commonwealth countries need to know and a principle that all of us individuals should be familiar with. Without further ado, I give you, if you give me a drum roll, please. Thank you. Donahue and Stevenson, or some people might know it, the snail in the bottle case. That's the only case I ever remember because... There's a snail in it. There's a snail in it. So, quick fact of the case. May Donahue and a friend went to an Italian cafe for a sweet treat in Glasgow. Her friend ordered her the Scottish equivalent of an ice cream float, which is two scoops of ice cream and ginger beer. I really want to try that, but it doesn't sound too tasty. I had ginger beer and I didn't like it that much, so having ice cream in it, no. So her friend paid for all of this, which is very important. Keep that in mind. The owner uncorked the bottle, which was a dark tinted bottle, so you couldn't actually see the contents of it poured half of the bottle into the ice cream for Mrs. Donahue. Miss Donahue ate it all up, so her friend poured in the rest of the ginger beer, and out of that bottle came a decomposing snail, which led to Miss Donahue naturally becoming quite sick. Uh, she felt quite revolted after seeing what came out of that bottle, so she was sick. I believe it was approximately a week. And she couldn't get out of bed. She couldn't go to work. It was really bad time for her. Though she was quite poor and not well off, this case managed to make its way all through the legal system to the Supreme Court, which is where the key decision and key principle comes through. If you're interested about the history and the background of this case, I recommend reading this fabulous book that Gani lent me. It's called Is He Eating People Wrong? And I don't know why she has this book, but... It was it was recommended at the beginning of the year. It was in one of the emails, so I bought it. It's about the great legal cases and how they shape the world. So, highly recommend. Good read. It gives you a lot more insight. Back to this, the case made its way all the way to the Supreme Court due to the persistence of her lawyer, Walter Leachman. And... The judgment that was passed by Lord Atkin is where the neighbor principle comes in. And I'm going to read that passage. This is from the book, and I'm quoting Lord Atkin. The rule that you are to love your neighbor becomes in law. You must not injure your neighbor. And the lawyer's question, 
Who is my neighbor? Receives a restricted reply. You must take reasonable care to avoid acts or omissions which you can reasonably foresee would be likely to injure your neighbor. Who then in law is my neighbor? The answer seems to be, persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act that I ought reasonably to have them in contemplation as being so affected when I am directing my mind to the acts or omissions which are called in question. End quote. <laughs> so why is this all in all important? Well, the neighbor principle has kind of been the foundation of current negligence law. It ensures that manufacturers owe their customers a duty of care. Before this, May Donahue would not have been able to sue the manufacturer because there was nothing saying she could. Hence where negligence law comes in. It doesn't matter that she didn't pay for the product. The ultimate consumer can still play a role and they are the people that the ultimate consumer has to be in the mind of the manufacturer when they're creating their product. Judgment was not recognized at the time for the impact that it would come to have. I don't believe it was until the late 1960s. Yeah, it was quite late. That judges actually started talking about the importance of this. We've talked a lot about in our course, why this was so important. So I'm going to bring Ganit here on the spot. And why was this case ever so important? Why was the neighborhood principle so important? What do you remember about it? It was not in today's agenda to quit <laughs> Ganit. So I am... <laughs> this is taking me by a little shock. Why is it important that manufacturers owe a duty of care to their ultimate consumer? To me, it's very simple of like a consumer and manufacturer relationship to maintain to make sure that your product is not causing harm to those that are consuming it it all comes down to harm and preventing harm being caused to others making sure that your negligent behavior is not the cause of the harm i think the importance of this case for me comes to the fact that yes we need manufacturers need to owe that duty of care it is important that they are held responsible for their actions, especially even if you aren't in a contractual relationship with them. Just because you didn't pay a money for their product and you end up using it and it injures you doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to sue them yeah. for it if it's caused you significant damage. Yeah, so it's like if Cynthia bought dinner from a restaurant for both of us and I'm eating it, I get sick. I can't sue Cynthia because she didn't know. Exactly. I'm we're, I'm going to go after the restaurant because they prepared the food. Or you're going to go after the people that gave them the food because yeah. the restaurant didn't either. And that's what happened here. The the bar, the, I believe it was a barman, bartender, I can't remember. Essentially, the person who poured the bottle for her and poured it for her, he didn't know what was inside no. the bottle because he couldn't see inside the bottle because of the, the fact that the bottle was tinted. Yeah. You had, he had no idea what was going to be found in there. And it went on to the manufacturer to ensure that there was no snails in the bottle. Exactly. I feel like this doesn't just apply to the hospitality industry. It also goes on to apply to, say, car manufacturers. If there's a faulty part that was given to the car company, and that car, say, two years down the line, is sold to someone and gets into an accident because of that one part, the person who got injured can go back to that factory and be like, it was your fault that I got 
hurt. So it's a whole chain reaction and being able to follow that chain and going back to the pinpoint as to where it all went wrong. Yeah, they have the responsibility from the start to ensure Mm -hmm. that whoever uses their product will be safe using that product, regardless if it's food or a like a piece from a car or a piece of a computer or whatever there is that responsibility and lord atkin finally placed it on them i would say Mm -hmm. but fun fact from this that i learned from this fabulous book is that the case was never resolved yes we have this judgment from the supreme court the supreme court actually sent this case back down to the lower court so that they could have another trial uh where Mrs. Donahue would actually have to prove the fact of there being a snail and her being ill. But the trial never happened because Mr. Stevenson, I believe, fell ill. He had appendicitis and passed away. So the trial never actually happened to prove whether there was a snail and whether she got sick. But this statement that Lord Atkin made still stands. And to this day, I believe that when students especially are looking at the origins of the duty of care they look to the neighbor principle yeah and even when lawyers practice like if they need to look at for an origin story this will be it our tort paper this past assessment period was regarding the duty of care and when we were looking at it we started by looking at donahue and stevenson even though the paper said to only start looking in the what you only look in the past 40 years. Yeah. We had to start here. Yeah. We because had to... there was no other way. This case, I don't think I even said the date, which I apologize for. Sorry, folks. I forgot to mention this and I should have. This case go- was dated in the Supreme Court in 1932. So when I was saying in our paper, only go back 30 years from 2020, which is when we were writing our paper. 1932 is a long shot, but we had to start there. It explains everything. So, now we hope you know that if you have the right to sue someone, this is kind of where it comes from. Also, I just really enjoy the facts of this case. If you ever want to impress a lawyer or just, you know, give a little top hat nod to them, just mention the fact that you know the fairgrounds of Donahue and Stevenson. Are you commercially aware? Well, we're definitely one step closer. I'm going to talk to you guys about NFTs, which stands for non-fungible tokens. It is a type of cryptographic asset, which pretty much comes down to it being a digital deed of ownership of digital media that is out there in the world. So it's not a cryptocurrency? No, it's... Not cryptocurrency. The idea was derived from the idea of cryptocurrency. They're very related because they're digital. Okay. Like cryptocurrency is digital currency. Yeah. NFTs are digital deeds of ownership. So cryptocurrency is identical, whereas crypto, what is it? Cryptographic assets. Cryptographic assets are not identical, which is what the difference is. Yes. Got it. Every NFT has a unique digital signature, which is recorded in a digital ledger. And that confirms that the digital collectible is real. So say you want to buy a meme, you can have an NFT that gives you the digital deed of ownership of that meme, even though the creator of the meme still has the rights, like creative rights to it. 
what's the point? Like, I just don't it's see not, the point. There isn't... That's where... I, that's why I was very intrigued by it, because so many people are spending millions of dollars on this, trying to collect different artwork, different, like, music, and all of this stuff, but there's no point to it. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, sold his very first tweet in, like, a bidding war kind of thing for $2.5 million. And the person who won it, won the bid, got an NFT that gave him the digital ownership to Jack Dorsey's first tweet. But there's nothing he can do about it. Like, he can't use it anywhere. Like, people can still access the tweet. Yeah, people People can... can still repost the tweet. Yeah. So what can he do that other he people can't? He has a can't? collectible. Why do people collect things? They like it. Why do people... Well, people collect things when they're unique. Yeah. When nobody else can have it, but here people can. Here people can. That's where it kind of defeats the purpose of it. Where that's how I... One of the articles I read was like, what's the whole point of this? And it was just like, you get bragging rights. You get to brag that I have the digital ownership of this. Which is why I'm like, you have all this money that you're spending on digital artwork. At Christie's auction this past Feb, there was a piece of art that was sold for 50 million pounds. And the person got an NFT, which was a digital deed of ownership. And there's been a lot of conversation about what does this mean for intellectual property in the future? Because if you can have an idea, you can sell that idea on a digital platform. And how is that sale going to be controlled? Because something when something is out there, how do you stop it from being hacked into? How do you stop it from being copied? How do you stop it from being um, just taken down in general? Being corrupted? It's very... To me, it's a very unique thing that has come up because it doesn't feel like it's accessible to everyone. No, it doesn't sound like that at all. It sounds like something for the rich folk. Yeah, unless you have hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, you can't really buy anything. Let's say I did have hundreds and thousands and, you know what, millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. I'm that loaded. I am not. But let's say I was. How do I go about getting a NFT how do I, it, do I need to first get my cryptocurrency to buy the product and then in exchange for that product, I will get the token? Or do I actually get a token first? Like how I feel does like, it work? I feel like that'd be kind of like any sale process that goes on. You find a place that is willing to sell you what you want. And then you go in, you either give them, pay them in cryptocurrency, you pay them in real money, however you want to do that transaction. And in exchange, you get an NFT, which is your digital deed of ownership. Does the artist or person who owns the digital property, do they have to somehow register the fact that their piece of digital work is going to have an NFT? Is it now required that it has an NFT or is it by choice only? I feel like right now it's probably by choice only. William Shatner is selling trading cards and one of the trading cards is literally just an x-ray of his teeth. What? Yeah, and people are willing to buy it. Dead Mouse, the DJ, he is selling um, digital stickers, animated stickers. 
gifts? I guess so. (laughs) They're pretty much gifts. But they call it animated stickers. And they're being sold. So it's very much one of those things to me where it's if you're rich, you collect art and you collect, you can have the ownership of these collectibles. Okay, and where, I'm trying to understand, because it's a digital token essentially, mm-hmm. where is that all stored? Like, it's it's stored in a digital ledger online. So Not the, online, but like, it's a digital ledger. The person who actually owns the token doesn't get like an email or something like, well, here's your prob- token. Well, yeah, there probably is. There probably is some sort of an email or some sort of document that's sent to you digitally that confirms that you own it and the record is there and the person who's bought it is the digital owner as of right now and they have the option to further sell it if they want okay so there's a digital bookkeeper essentially but then my question is who manages the digital bookkeeping who's responsible for that is it all a computer i'm not quite sure because i didn't look into it but I would assume so. I feel like there has to be some organization that controls the sale and buying process for all of this and that is in charge of that ledger. I would is I would hope so. There's a number of concerns that have come up regarding this. Analysts have said that NFTs kind of exist in a bubble right now. And every bubble bursts at some point. It's being said that it is kind of a dangerous investment. It is um, prone to fraud and liquidity. So there's a lot of, like anything new in the market, there are a lot of concerns about it. But then it's also like in that odd percentage that this works, that NFTs are something that a lot of people start using for digital ownerships of things. One question that came up is, could home ownerships be tokenized in this way? Not necessarily an NFT, but in a similar way, where you have when you buy a house, you have a dig- you have an ownership deed of ownership. Can that o- deed of ownership be tokenized so that you have a token that you own a house, and you can sell that token? Every time we say token, I just think of an arcade, and I'm just like, I'm yeah. gonna collect all my tokens and then go pss, trade it in for like a stuffed monkey or something, <laughs> like. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. It does sound like that. It's very... I'm getting all my deeds and paper. It's very absurd to me that this is something that is in trend right now. Because when it comes to consumer relationships, how far... Like, what's the new thing that's going to come up when it comes to the whole consumerism buying and selling process? I'm wondering when will this stop, this need to, this need for people to own everything? Because at a certain point, is it going to become that every single piece of digital information we put out there will have an automatic NFT, like, price to it? Yeah. Where do you draw the line? I don't know. I would like somebody to draw the line. (laughs) There are so many ethical concerns that come to mind. I do think that the current craze is just about artists that are well-established and they're just using this to make more money. To me, this entire concept is fairly new and I just found it really interesting. Definitely something I want to look into. And yeah. 
<laughs> make sure it does not happen to me. I don't think it will because <laughs> I'm I... not becoming famous or rich anytime soon. But like, I genuinely believe that this is one of those trends that is here mm-hmm. right now, and like next year or the year after, something new is gonna come, and no one's gonna be thinking about this again. I googled it really quickly to understand what you were saying because I can't wrap my mind around this and one of the things that comes up is the downside of downside of it which is the environmental impact which some of you might know is really important to me <laughs> or cuz it's saying how in order to create NFTs you have to well it's also worth hundreds of dollars and you have to create a token on the Ethereum blockchain so you have to use Ethereum you have to pay a gas fee that goes into handling the transaction, and that's also based on the price of Ethereum. And Ethereum, just like Bitcoin, has to be mined, which takes up a lot of energy. And I'm reading here that it says Ethereum takes the same power as the same like amount of energy that is used to power Libya. Bitcoin takes the amount of energy that is used to power Argentina. So this is huge amounts of power. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I think it's probably not going to... It's not something that's here to stay. Well, people say that about Bitcoin. Look how long it's been around. See, I do feel like there's a lot of people that just don't indulge in it. There's a small population that indulges in it and... But that population has so much wealth and so much power and they're the ones that essentially make a big difference they do and that's where i think the environmentalists come in and they someone needs to put their foot down and raise that issue and i'm pretty sure that issues those issues are being raised and but no one's putting their foot down no because they're rich and they have money that's how the world works unfortunately i hope nfts aren't here to stay because i really i i I don't see the value in it i don't either but the fact that it is all of a sudden blown up and like so many people are talking about it just makes you think that how many trends come and go and affect the market and affect the law and raise all these issues if you guys are interested in this we will as usual post the articles that we looked into on into our episode description and Please let us, let us know if you'd ever buy an NFT token or if you're thinking of it. Because yeah. I want to ask you some questions. <laughs> How are you doing? But really. Reeling in from the confusion I have right now about NFTs. How are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> How am I doing? I'm doing great right now. We are in our first week of our three-week break from school, and it feels really good not to be focusing on school right now and studying and preparing for exams. It feels really good to just go outside every day, get some fresh air, enjoy the sunshine. The weather has been great this past week. I even managed to burn my nose. I was able to wear a dress this past week, so I was like, yes. Two different priorities. <laughs> no, this week has been going really, really well. I have managed to find more time for myself to do things I enjoy, like 
reading and walking and exploring a little bit more of England because the restrictions have finally started to ease. We made our way out to Seven Sisters yesterday. Yeah. Which is a set of cliffs because it's the edge of England. (laughs) And you go up and down, up and down. Oh, that was not... I can still feel the pain in my legs from that walk. It always baffles my mind that I'm at the edge of a country. (laughs) That just always blows my mind when I look out to the sea. I managed to finish a book in 24 hours. I haven't done that in years. So I was really happy with myself. It was a really good book, though. Yeah, it was um, Girl on the Train. Very, very good. 10 out of 10 recommend? Yes. Would not recommend the movie? I haven't watched the movie, so I can't say anything. Books are always better, Books essentially. Are always better. Um, apart from that, this week has kind of been stressful in a different way because I am running for an executive position at a law society at my school, and I have never done anything like this, so it's very much out of my comfort zone. Trying to campaign for it, trying to put myself out there is something that's very new to me, but it's also very exciting at the same time. It's just hard because we've only been here a year and we haven't been able to interact with the student body at all. Yeah, we haven't had any student interaction apart from like each other. But the one good thing that has come out of it is I've met some really amazing people that I cannot wait to meet in person, that I cannot wait to hang out with. It's been a fun week, but it's had its stressful points for sure. (laughs) Because like any other election, there's always little things that things that bug you, things that oh little things that get to you about like, oh, this is not fair, this is not okay. But then you have to figure out what you are you wanna do about it. I think campaigning is stressful because you yeah. you don't know the people necessarily that you're going to reach out to and it, it is you are taking a huge risk when you message people you don't know. Yeah. And you want to get to know them. But you only have a short amount of time. Yeah. And so it's really stressful getting yourself out there. I too am running for an exact position. It's not as high up as Kanit's, but I'm going for a role that means a lot to me. And I know I'll be able to do a good job in it, so I'm very proud of my role, and I will be, because I think I have a pretty good, a pretty good chance of getting it. <laughs> you don't say. I mean, that might be because there's no one else running for my position, but... <laughs> <laughs> Tough competition there. It's okay. Aside from campaigning this week, what has made this past week really good for me is I've stayed off of social media and news the news cycle for the Uh, past week because it has been getting to me a lot in the past week few weeks Mm -hmm. just with everything going on in the world like i last time we spoke on our podcast i know i mentioned sarah everard that's been going on still with just the outcome of the protests that have been going on and then there was the attack in the united states yeah and I needed a mental break from all of it because reading about it does take a toll on me because I start going into a hole of the world is a horrible place. Yeah. And I think taking that break from the news does really help for me. So that definitely 
put me into a better mental space and allowed me to be a bit more, have a better outlook for things to come so that I can, when I do jump back into it, I'm not as beaten down as I was before. It's very important when you read the news that you're able to take it with a grain of salt, that yes, horrible things happen in the world all the time, but then you have to remind yourself that there's only so much you can do. Thinking about it again and again is not going to do you any good. Digging yourself into a hole because of everything that's going on in the world sometimes, in my opinion, is not worth it for your mental health. No, definitely need to take a break. Just putting my phone away, my laptop away, and leaving the world outside is a great thing to do. My family gets annoyed with me because they always think I'm on my phone, and so when I don't respond, and like, fast, or if I'm not answering, then they're just like, what's going on? And I'm like, I'm just not on my phone. I needed a break. (laughs) I've actually been going to sleep really quickly this entire week because I've been tired. My body has been exhausted by the time we come home, even if it's just from taking a walk in Brighton or... Because we've finally been doing stuff. We've been leaving the house. It's so exciting to wake up in the morning and have something to do. Besides studying. Yeah, besides studying. And today, actually, I'm going to get back into dancing. I finally... That's exciting. We're spending a day at home, so I'm going to take an online dance class, and I'm really looking forward to it. But I think our... Our check-in has been better this time around. Yeah. We are definitely looking at the happier side of things. I'm really excited for more restrictions to ease up so I can finally go get a haircut. That's the next big thing I'm looking forward to. (laughs) A haircut. It's the small things in life, really. Yeah. But it's also Easter this weekend, and Cynthia's going to be doing a bunch of baking, and I'm really excited for it because I don't bake. But I love to eat. I'm very excited for Easter. I wish I was home because I came back to England so I could be closer to home. So I could just pop on over home and just have Easter with my family. Because I haven't been home for Easter in five years, I think. And I miss it. I could honestly not remember what we eat for Easter anymore. Because I haven't had it in so long. Yeah. So I just, I miss it. I miss Easter breakfast. But I'm going to try to recreate some bits of my favorite foods. Foods? My favorite dishes? Something along those lines. So I'm, I am very excited to share that with Ganit. Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email us at llcbpodcast at gmail.com. And if there's anything else you guys want us to talk about, let us know. We're thinking maybe we could have some guest speakers come in and talk about the Canada to England transition or maybe some speakers talking about how it is practicing in the UK. If that's something you would be interested in, let us know. Also, if there's anything that came up in the news and if you want to chat with us about it, as Kanit said, drop us an email. We'll see you in a fortnight. But um. But till then. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye.